Our scripture reading this morning comes from 1 Corinthians, the ninth chapter, verses 16 through 23. Hear now the word of the Lord. If I proclaim the gospel, this gives me no ground for boasting, for an obligation is laid upon me, and woe to me if I do not proclaim the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I will have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am trusted with a commission. What then is my reward? Just this, that if my proclamation, I may make the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my rights in the gospel. For though I am free with respect to all, I have made myself a slave to all, so that I might win more to them. To the Jews, I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, though I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law, so that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, so that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that I might by all means save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, so that I may share in its blessing the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. My friends, it is a pleasure to be with you in worship. If you have been following along the order of worship, you will see that Reverend Stone has several parts of our liturgy. She was unable to participate as she came down with a migraine just before service, so lift her up in your prayers. She is still trying to be here with us in worship. However, she is um, taking a break right now. So let's pray and think of her as we pray, as we ask God to illuminate our minds and hearts to the meaning of this text. Join your heart with mine. Creator God, we're thankful for the life that you have given us. And we make confession now that we haven't always been faithful with that gift. We have been wayward, we have been unwise, we've been sinful. And even though we've walked away, you sent, you sent your son Christ the Lord to reconcile us unto yourself, to cultivate in us a desire for your kingdom, and we are grateful. In like manner, you have sent your Holy Spirit to be our guide, counselor, and friend, to knit us together as a true community of care. Send your spirit now, for without you, you and I know I can do nothing. And we ask that these words ring true in our hearts and produce fruit in our lives. These words of St. Paul, we know that you have inspired him to write these words. Inspire us too, that they may bring new life wherever we go. It is in the matchless name of your son, Jesus, we pray. And God's people say together, amen. I don't know how you have beaten pandemic blues. Sometimes I find myself going out of the house with my AirPods on, 
walking the neighborhood listening to podcasts. There is one podcast in particular I took delight in. It's a, a comedy duo. It was voted best new comedic podcast of the year. And I'd find myself walking the neighborhood and chuckling out loud. But they too, like all of us, were inundated with this most recent election cycle. I, like you, am very happy that it's over with because I couldn't take any more of the election news or the commercials or the campaign ads. But it even affected this podcast that brought me such great joy. One uh, episode, the two guys who were hosting said, now we want to make sure we stop the comedy for a moment and tell you to get out there and vote. One guy said, I don't care who you vote for, just vote. The other guy responds, well, I care who they vote for. And the other guy goes, no, 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 no. It is our sacred obligation to vote. Obligations. They can be hard and weighty things, obligations. I believe St. Paul considered it an obligation to proclaim the gospel. And the evidence from all of his letters is that he thinks it's everyone's obligation the word I'm really referring to and have yet to say is the scary word for Christians to hear. Evangelism. That act of going and telling somebody else about the saving work of Christ. The ability to go to people and tell them about how Jesus wants justice for the world. The act of telling your own story and showing how Christ has laid claim of your own life. In fact, in our story this morning, he sort of boasts about his adeptness of connecting with people for the sake of the gospel. He says, I become all things to all people. To Jews, I become like Jews. To the Greeks, I become like the Greeks. When I read that, and I don't know about you, it certainly comes off a little bit braggadocious. How can any one person be all things to all people? It's not possible. Let me suggest that Paul isn't really being braggadocious here. He's, he is using rhetoric in line with ancient Greek and Roman rhetoric. Leaders would often lay out their CV, their resume, just to instill encouragement and strength to the followers. Paul is trying to convince his people that they have good work to do. But this is also to illustrate just how serious this good work is. The good news of Christ may ever be on the lips and in the life of those who claim Christ as Lord. Christians, in a word, are to help other people have an epiphany of God. A realization that God has come near and is doing work in our lives. So this text strikes me as really important for our own day and time to understand why I think we must discuss where we are in history. The great Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor says that we are in the midst of what's called the secular age, or the age of post-Christendom. Ever since the 1960s, we've headed headfirst into more and more secularity and post-Christendom. What does that word mean, post-Christendom? Well, don't think it means that the church has gone away. It simply means that Christianity is not necessarily coterminous with the culture that's all around. 
the church used to have a lot more say in the age of Christendom. In the age of Christendom, kings and queens knelt before clerics. Slowly but surely, that season of human history has receded away, and now we're living in the age of the secular, which doesn't mean that there's no religion or spiritual belief or the belief in supernatural or something else of that sort. It means this. It means that belief in God is just one belief amongst many others that can give people meaning. There's a marketplace of ideas and practices in our secular age. And it's quite a bit different than the early church's age. You see, in the early church, the church that we read about in Scripture, where St. Paul is, and for a few centuries thereafter, when the church was really finding its groove, the church was a ragtag cult. I don't mean cult in that scary sense where there's some sort of abusive leader who controls their people. I mean cult in the technical sense, a small group of believers. That's what the church was like. And it was also contrary to the ways of the empire. Sometimes these early Christians found themselves in trouble and in prison for their belief. They would walk about saying, Christos Kurios, Christ is Lord when all you were really permitted to say was Kaiser Kurios, Caesar is Lord. The Lordship of Christ was a, was a threat to the Lordship of the Caesar, the head of Rome, and so often they got into trouble. They were small, feisty, and at that time, if you were looking, you may not think that the church would take hold. Do you remember the $100 million quarterback, Drew Bledsoe? Signed with the New England, Patri New England Patriots. They got a $100 million quarterback. They had a great coach. They had a good team. The Patriots were going to do something this year. And then, boom, one game. Drew Bledsoe was knocked out. His backup had to come in. No one really knew who this backup was. He didn't make a big name for himself in college. And he was not really considered by many other teams trade-worthy. His name is, what is it? Tom Brady, that's right, Tom Brady. Many people consider him to be the greatest quarterback of all time. I still think Joe Montana bears that, but nevertheless, he has done significantly wonderful things for football and in his own career. Tom Brady stepped in and everyone thought the season was over. And then he connected a few passes and then a touchdown. And the next thing you know, it looks like they're going to make it. That's what the early church was like, just eking it out, and then there was glimmers of hope. But as human history and Western history went on, so did the church. Several hundred years after its founding was the Emperor Constantine. Let's talk about Constantinianism and what I'm going to call the general wave of Western civilization. Constantine was the first emperor that made Christianity legal, and then he famously converted to it. I'm not going to get into all the history to question whether or not he was sincere in his heart or not. The point is, is that once he converted and made it legal, Christianity was now acceptable. In fact, it became so powerful in that day and time, and it continued to, as far as the, the world spread westward, its ideals were matched up with communities and kingdoms, and this is where kings and queens would bend the knee before clerics. You would seek the approval of the Pope, for instance, for making decisions in your own kingdom. Christianity here was gaining a lot of cultural power. This is all about growth and identity. 
I'll never forget one Super Bowl Sunday. I was invited to my friend's house, and in the living room there's a whiteboard, and they always made you do this at their home. You had to write down your name and who you picked to win, and then that was associated with a ticket. The ticket went to a hat, and at the end you could win raffles and things. And I remember thinking, I'm going to cheer for the New England Patriots. So the first time they were in the Super Bowl in a long time, led by that Tom Brady fellow. I thought to myself, you know, the Celtics haven't been good in a long time. The Red Sox, they're cursed. New England Patriots haven't been good in a long time. I just went to Boston. It's kind of a cool town. I'll cheer for them. I thought I was really cheering for the underdog. Little did I know that I was cheering for the team that would dominate the NFL for many, many years to go. By the way, I quit cheering for them a long time ago, just so you know. As history kept going and the church kept going with it, we enter into the last century, midway through. Christianity around America was part of mainline society. You could make the assumption that your neighbor was a Christian. They may not go to church much, but their, but their name was on a church roll somewhere. They identified, maybe not as a Presbyterian, maybe they were the Methodist, or like us, simply they were Christians, but they had some background in the church. They understand or understood something about Jesus Christ. In that day and time, the, the church was just kind of everywhere, and in a lot of cases, people practice Christianity on the high holy days, but there was a lot of folks who let their faith be nominal, in name only. We started seeing more and more weaknesses in the church when it was wed to power structures. Just like we witnessed with the New England Patriots as Bill Belichick got caught cheating, Tom Brady deflated footballs. Yep, someone asked me if I was going to polarize the church today with football, and I said, I hope to. Friends, what I'm trying to say is that I think it's hard to be radical about evangelism in a world after Constantine and when it's the, the faith is mainline in our society. It's hard to think about being radical about it because it just seems as though Christianity is everywhere. It is in the ether. It's in the culture. It appears that almost everyone already believes, which is what makes the born-again movement so powerful in the last century. And for a long time, the born-again movement, the, the have-you-been-sincerely-born-again language was a bit of a cultural outlier. Most were already committed in some way to Jesus Christ, but then these folks got inspired and were seeking a heartfelt, sincere turn of the heart back to God. Even if you had been going to church your whole life sitting in, in the same pew, you might be asked, yes, but have you actually been born again? There was a yearning for the feeling that John Wesley described when he said his heart was finally strangely warm. There was a yearning for people to feel that way. As an aside and a thought about evangelism in general, all the research suggests that People who come to faith in Christ, only about 1% of them do so through big rallies or crusades, the kind that Billy Graham used to host. The majority of people who say they've come to Christ in their adult life or teen life did so through relationships and friends. People saying, come on, come and see, or let me tell you my story. Incidentally, I went to a Billy Graham crusade once. I went with my youth group. 
The whole stated purpose for the crusade was to lead people to be born again. Yet as a born-again Christian, I went. I thought it was interesting to look around the stadium, the football stadium, where the greatest show on turf used to play in St. Louis. I looked around, and I saw nothing but Christians. Everyone knew all the hymns. Yet when there was that altar call, just as I am was sung 14 times. Hundreds of people went down to feel that sense of the warmth of the heart. I'm aware that when you're hearing my very fast and very non-detailed trek through history, you might get the sense that you wish we could go back to something of the era of Constantine or where the church was mainline, where we knew that church was not in decline in society and we could expect the people we elected to speak with biblical language and at least something of a Christian worldview. But the truth is, we're not called to bring the kingdom of God into this world by means of secular power structures. And a great deal of nominal Christianity was present back then, not to mention the fact that even in these days when we look back and think it was all better, there were many, many, many abuses of power by people in the church. The truth is we co-opted we allow the church to be co-opted by powers and principalities and all other sorts of agendas during this time. That time wasn't perfect. And the thing is, is you, you can't put the genie back in the bottle. We're not going back societally. We are firmly in the secular age, as Charles Taylor calls it. He tells us that it's spurned on by another age, another title, the age of authenticity. The age where I grew up in and many of you grew up in, and it's been going on at least since the 60s, but far before that too. An age where we're told to follow our bliss, to find out what makes you happy, for you to go do you. You go do you. In an age where the overlying ethos is finding out what makes me happy and finding my purpose and following my bliss and focusing on being real inside and out, in that age, well, it's one where we don't like to listen to authority. And tradition, the tradition of the great church is one type of authority. More often than not, you'll see people finding, uh, trying to find what fills the hole in their heart through CrossFit or um, a, a multi-tiered marketing scheme or maybe a little bit of spirituality over here mixed with a bit of spirituality over there or maybe even still simply finding it in their work. We live in the age of authenticity. We cannot put the genie back in the bottle and go back to a social expectation that everyone agrees on the same thing about faith and church. The desire to be a member in an institution, even if it's called a church today, is far less interesting than experiencing some sense of what is truly mystical and a true mystical union with God. Let me say that again. The desire to be a member of another institution does not compare to the real desire of having a mystical union with God. Which is what makes this passage so important for us today. In older times, you could just assume that everybody belonged to a church, therefore everyone was good. 
You could just assume that by virtue of being an upstanding American who is part of a rotary club, maybe even a part of another service organization, that they also belong to a church and therefore they were good. They're okay. And so when you really wanted to get your son baptized or your daughter and you couldn't answer the questions or you wanted your neighbor to understand more, you just took those people to the experts, to the pastor, the priest, the youth worker. They did the work of evangelism and that would be good. But today, as Christendom has declined and the secular age is growing and people are yearning for a mystical union with God, they're yearning for that and they're not necessarily interested in just belonging to an organization. Let me say this, it becomes incumbent upon us to take Paul at his word. We're obligated to become all things to all people that we may win some. We're obligated to go to all people what does it mean to go to all people? Well, firstly, I think it means this. We have to actually build bridges to other people and then go to where they are rather than expect for them to come to where we are. Yes, we have a beautiful community at Peachtree Christian Church. And yes, the sanctuary is beautiful. And yes, the music is wonderful. And hopefully the sermons mean something to you. But the reality is just because we open our doors doesn't mean people who need the message We'll just walk in and say, thank you. We have to go to their worlds. We have to be part of their stories. We have to build bridges and understand them, listen to them, hear from their heart. I think another thing that this implies is that we actually need to help people belong before they believe. In the world of joining an organization, people have to believe and say the right things before they belong. We need to let people belong before they believe. Include people at the table. Include people in the embrace of the warmth and love of a community. Bring them in, warts and all, and let that be the fuel or the avenue for belief. I think it also means that Christians need to be better storytellers. We ought to be the best storytellers. If we believe that this is the greatest story that one could tell, the story of redemption revealed to us in Jesus Christ, then ought we learn how to tell it, not just with our mouths, but in our art, in our films, in our music, and how we imagine our own life. Can we tell our own story in and, in and around that great story? We need to become better storytellers. For to take Paul's words seriously, friends, I think it means that as a church, we must be ready to change our methods, not our mission, our methods. We must be willing to change our structure and our expectations if we're actually going to draw more people in in this age of authenticity. Epiphany, with a great realization. We must be that epiphany and realization of God working in this world for other people through the great obligation we have to share the gospel. May you be so obliged to go forth, become all things to all people. Bless you.